just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I am sitting down with Dr. Kevin J. Payne to talk about his diagnosis of multiple sclerosis or more commonly known as MS. In this episode, Kevin talks about the journey of finally getting a diagnosis and a name for his symptoms, how he manages these symptoms, what has inspired his work at Your Life Lived Well, including his book. He teaches me some new information about stress, and then we get to the big one, how and why he became a professional skydiver. I really enjoyed getting to know Kevin in this episode, and I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy it as well. Welcome to That's So Chronic. You have lived quite the extraordinary life and I'm really excited to unpack and chat more about that this morning or this afternoon for you. If people aren't too sure where they might recognize you from, you are an author, you are a speaker, a teacher, a podcaster yourself, you also are an entrepreneur which I've always struggled to say that word, but I just attacked it with confidence. But it's a great word. <laughs> it's a great word. Gotta love the French. You're also the founder of Your Life Lived Well. You have a PhD in sociology and psychology. You worked for 15 years as a professor and 10 years as a consulting data specialist when a condition that I know all too well, completely flipped your life upside down. It is, of course, multiple sclerosis or MS. And we're going to chat more about that today. But the super exciting part that I think I'm just going to launch straight into and, and the cat is out of the bag. But this diagnosis didn't actually stop you from fulfilling a childhood dream of being able to fly because you became a skydiver. Yeah. Uh, I, guilty. <laughs> we'll chat more about that soon, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to try to live up to that introduction. <laughs> Shall we start all the way back at the at the beginning? Because I read on your website that you've had MS or you've been living with MS since 1989, but you didn't actually get correctly diagnosed till 2006, mm -hmm. which is 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. What was life like all the way back at the beginning? So at the beginning of my, my journey with what I was eventually shown to be MS, uh, mm -hmm. it, was, it was 1989. I was in college. I'd just turned 20 years old. And my balance started going a little wonky. Right. And I really noticed it because I was taking a fencing class at ah. the time. And I love fencing. Yeah. And I love stage combat. I mean, you can see... Right there behind me, there's one of my swords hanging on the wall. Love that. So, I, you know, I, I, I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. But then suddenly, my balance would would completely go wonky. Yeah. While I was trying to fence, mm -hmm. and and it was really discouraging and depressing because I'd never had that kind of problem. About the same time, I started having these weird 
eye incidents. And you know those eye saccades, it's kind of yeah. like your eyes, I, I think of it as your eyes stuttering. Yes, yeah. Because it's like, and it's like, that was really weird. And I started itching everywhere. I know the itching. <laughs> yeah, all over. Yep. And, and you know, you can't scratch, you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And, and so, and I got really down about the whole thing because this was really weird. So I, I went to the university physician mm -hmm. and he said, now I think, you know, in fairness, he was probably responding to, he's seen a lot of students over the years and I was in a very demanding academic program and he's seen a lot of students over the years who are dealing with those kinds of stresses and yeah. said, oh, you're depressed. Right. Okay. I said, okay. And, and you know, who was I to judge? Because yeah. I was a, a college student and depression runs in my family. Mm -hmm. So entirely possible. I'd, I'd never been depressed before. I'm generally a pretty cheery, glasses half full kind of guy. Yeah. But he sent me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist confirmed, yes, this is major depression. Oh. And they put me on drugs. Okay. And did that help? No. Yeah. <laughs> the first drug didn't work. So they put me on another drug. And the second drug didn't work. And they put me on another drug. Yeah. And after three or four of these, they said, well, we're just going to tag your case as treatment resistant. Good luck. Oh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So a few months later, I was back to normal again. Yes. Yeah. Except the thing that always stayed was the itching. Okay. From, from 1989 till now, I have never not itched. Wow. So... And, and sometimes it gets, you know, as it gets more pronounced and as my symptoms get worse, then it becomes electric shocks. Yes. Yeah. But you can see that kind of continuum in your experience. Mm -hmm. And when it gets really bad, there have been a couple of occasions where I had pushed myself too far and it feels like a horde of electric hornets stinging me all over. Yes. And, and, and once... The pain was so much that I passed out. Yeah. In the middle of mowing the front lawn. Wow. You know, then, so I would have these symptoms that came and went, and and I would get depressed over it, and I would get legitimately depressed. I mean, yeah. once in in the late '90s, this happened, and I was working on my dissertation at the time, and suddenly I became very cognitively foggy, and I I didn't know what to do, and I actually gained. 120 pounds. Wow. Okay. And then one day, a couple of years, you know, after I had gotten to that point, I'd gone from a 27 inch waist to a 46 inch waist. Mm -hmm. And one morning, and I didn't really notice yeah. at the time. <laughs> and, and, and one morning I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I saw myself really for the first time in a long time. And I said, Oh my gosh, I look like the guy who ate Kevin. So, so then I, I, I got back to my old habits and I lost 120 pounds then in the next two years. Yeah. But all of that was just completely unexplained. So every time that like a new, I guess what we know now is like a relapse or an exacerbation, every time mm -hmm. a new one would happen, would you go back and see a doctor about it? No, because I was a, a dumb young male. <laughs> And and we know that dumb young males, which really dumb is just kind of unnecessary there. It's superfluous. But nevertheless, I was living in my own cloak of invulnerability, yeah. right? 
And, yeah. and so it's like, I'm a young guy. I'm otherwise healthy. I got some weirdness going on. No big deal. Yeah. And, and so, so one morning in 2002, I woke mm -hmm. up and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. Okay. It was just gone. And I thought I'd overdone my workout and pinched a nerve the day before. Yep. So I didn't really think a lot about it. And then a few days later, it was back to normal. Ah. And then it disappeared again. Interesting. And then it was back again. Yeah. And it kept going. And then it was other parts of my body. And then finally, one morning I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body was gone. Wow. And at that point, my long-suffering then wife said, I'm putting my foot down. You're getting this looked at. Yeah. So I did. So that was in 2002. Well, it was finally 2006. Okay. When I've, been, <laughs> I've been living with disappearing limbs for four years wow. by this point. Okay. Yeah, I said I was dumb. So, so I went to my GP and he did a lot of weird tests that nobody had ever done on me before. And he sent me to a neurologist oh. and the neurologist did some more tests and, you know, sent me to like an evoked potential test and, and sent me to an MRI. And, and after the first MRI, I came back in and he said, well, the first thing that you will be glad to know is that it is not multiple sclerosis. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, plot twist. It, this is fun. Yeah, plot <laughs> twist. <laughs> so, which which was a big relief at the time because of yeah. all the the possibilities we were considering. That was the big bad icky one of the yeah. bunch. He said, however, remember this is two thousand six, so mm -hmm. MRIs have come a long way since yeah. then. He said, we've got a brand new MRI in the region that is much higher resolution. It's the next generation of resolution. I want to send you there. And and then if there's anything new, my office will get in touch with you. If not, just come back in three months and okay. no big deal. So I, I did. I went to the new MRI. I, I, I didn't hear anything. It got closer and closer to the three-month mark. And I, I thought, you know, I'm just not going to go back because yeah. I'm not getting any information and you know yeah but I, I then finally i said oh well okay I'll, I'll go ahead and go so i went so i'm sitting there in his office and he comes in and he's he's got my this tells you how long ago it was because i had a big thick paper file no yeah. emrs so he's he we say hi and everything and he starts flipping through the files in you know and 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 he stops cold and then he does this wild-eyed double take at my file and then he kind of clears his throat he looks a little sheepish and he says excuse me i'll be right back and he whisked out of the room well that's always a good sign isn't it yeah yeah you <laughs> never want a neurologist to do a wild eye double take at your file <laughs> so anyway about five minutes later he came back and that was like the longest five minutes of my life to that yeah. point and and he's and when he came back in he looked kind of dejected and he, and he came in and he sat down in front of me, kind of slumped down, and he began, I am so sorry. Okay, now that's another thing you never want your neurologist no. to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm so sorry. There's no doubt with the new MRI that it is MS and it's been in your system for a long time. Wow. So, wow. That was your diagnosis. Did they have to do any other tests or like a lumbar puncture or anything like that? No, I never had to have a lumbar puncture because there are, there are, by the time I got identified, 
I literally am Swiss cheese all the way yeah. up and down. It's <laughs> a lot so, of activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did it feel to have a name? I was relieved. I was relieved at first because I'd been living with this unlabeled weirdness for so long. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you know what it feels like when you get that diagnosis, it sucks yeah. because it's a scary diagnosis to get. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with it yeah. and nothing good that comes with it. Yeah. The, the, most of the people we know of in the popular culture who live with MS have had really serious cases. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of positive to look forward to. So, yeah, on the one hand, there was that. But on the other hand, it was like, wow, now at least I know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And I, and I can start planning and, and using that knowledge. And then, of course, you know, you get access to supports that you need within the medical system, although the medical system still really sucks for chronic illness. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book and built the company and did all that stuff, because everything is, is kind of done according to an acute care model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and physicians and medical professionals are trained according to an acute care model. And it's all about we identify a medical problem, we give you a medical solution, we pat you on your butt, and we send you back to your normal life, quote unquote, yeah. normal life. And that breaks down for us. Yeah. So on the one hand, it does give you what the medical system has to offer, mm -hmm. which is not a lot because they can't cure it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be chronic. Yeah. <laughs> and it also gives you some social legitimacy. Yeah. Because now everybody around you can say, oh, there's this recognized diagnosis that's associated with what has been going on in your life. I'm interested in what your definition of MS is. If someone who has never heard of this condition before was like, hey, what's this thing? How would you describe it to them? So I start by saying, and at the beginning, when I was first diagnosed, we didn't understand that MS was an autoimmune condition. Yeah. You know, we still had not figured that out yet. Mm -hmm. And so the way I begin is something has happened to us and we've been exposed to some kind of infection that normally people just fight off yeah. and don't even think about. But because we have some kind of genetic proclivity, it has caused our immune system to go haywire. Yeah. And it has fixated on seeing a danger where it doesn't exist. And the danger that it sees is the myelin surrounding the wires in our brain and our spine. And, and just like if you have wires in your house where, the, where the, the coating gets scraped off, they short circuit. Yeah. Well, that's what's happening in our brain and our spinal cord. We're short circuiting. And if we're short circuiting, because everything we think, feel, do, say, operate in the world passes through our central nervous system, then the symptoms can literally be anything. Yeah. They can be cognitive, emotional, physical, behavioral, all of that. Mm -hmm. and, and so it comes and it goes, and it, it is a roulette wheel of a condition. What would your symptoms be on a day-to-day -day basis, I guess, or the common recurring <laughs> ones? You mentioned the itching. Yes, yes. So I always itch. 
I, I'm always medically fatigued. Yeah. The the best I get is really really tired if I do everything right and and get a great night's sleep, which I do. Yeah. I'm I'm really religious about my sleep. Yeah. So I'm so I'm always medically fatigued. I'm always in pain. Haven't had a pain-free day in 20 years. Mm-hmm. As I get, I'm and I've always got cognitive fog yeah. as well. Yeah. So I'm kind of unfocused, and and that's a that's a huge challenge for me because I'm a brain guy. Yeah. I I, I have always made my living with my brain. Yeah. Thinking, hopefully, deep enough thoughts to get paid for. <laughs> you know, and and so so that's a huge challenge. Then. Toward the end of the day, usually my balance is pretty good during the day, but as I get closer to the end of the day, then I'm kind of always holding on to something, yeah. and I, if I, I stand up and my legs may you know, either be uh, completely uncooperative or spastic, and uh, you know I go right to the ground uh, with that, I always have numbness. So and it's and the canary in my coal mine, which I think is completely ironic, is my left foot. Okay. So, so my left foot, that's kind of where the numbness usually starts for me. Mm-hmm. And usually I can't feel my legs below my knees. Yeah. And, and the best I will get is maybe 20% okay. feeling. But interestingly, and I think this is a side effect from skydiving, I have a little bit of feeling in my left foot. Foot, about it started getting it about a year ago okay. for the first time in well over a decade. Wow. And I think that was because I, I, I kind of willed myself into some neuroplasticity Yeez. because I spent so much time working to be able to feel my legs in free fall. Yeah. So it darndest thing. But then there then there's another list. I, and I actually made an infographic out of it. There's another about 30 symptoms. Yeah that come and go. Yeah. Incredible. How would you describe the pain that you feel? I'm really interested in that because I always feel like I'm in a lot of pain, but I find it really hard to mm-hmm. describe. And I'm wondering if you have any gems of wisdom of how you would describe your pain. Yeah. For me, it's a direct analogy to like an electric shock. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it starts out with a low level. And, you know, if you, if you were a little kid and I do know what this feels like, because as a, as a little kid, I, I did, jam something metal into a uh, you know an outlet just to see yeah. what 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 would happen okay okay great and 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 ironically my my son did the same thing decades later yeah when he was about two oh wow or so uh, so so it must run in the family yeah. i don't know but but for me it starts out with like a low electric hum mm-hmm. and that's that's starts out with the itch but then it gets a painful edge yeah. to it. Okay. And then it becomes more like individual shocks yeah. that are running through my system. So for me, the pain is always seeming like it's electrical. Interesting. Really sensory type stuff. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So being diagnosed officially in 2006, what does the management plan look like like were you offered any treatments for it were there treatments yeah i started you know when you know at that time the only available dmds were uh, 
injectable. Yeah. So I, I started out on Rebif mm-hmm. and, and did that for a number of years. And that was, it started out okay. But, but even if I'm, you know, I don't mind injecting myself, but even if I do, after a while, that is that is cognitively and emotionally wearing. Yeah. So it it did get to where it was a really difficult thing for me to do, and I and for a number of years I didn't have injection site reactions, but then over time I I finally did. Okay. And 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 I also had a wonderful international incident when I was traveling to Saint Petersburg, Russia. Yeah. With a bunch of injectable syringes. Yeah. What happened? Oh my goodness! They they I I ended up getting taken aside and put in a little room and and investigated. And I had all the paperwork yeah. and everything too. But but it was just a bunch of Russian stereotypes, one right <laughs> after the other. And, yeah. And so so I did that for a number of years, and then when the first oral medication, Jolinia, came on the market, mm-hmm. uh, then I was one of the very first people wow. that was on it. And and that was, what was that like? Two thousand ten, yeah. late two thousand ten, maybe something like that. Yeah. So, you know, there's, so there's there's DMDs, and and then I have I have tried over the years various medications to help some symptoms. So yeah. like cognition and pain and stuff like that. Now I I, I always refused opioids for the pain so i i I just wasn't willing to go there so there was a time you know at the beginning when my pain really started getting bad Mm -hmm. that i was taking 20 or more ibuprofen a day wow yeah trying to take the edge off of it and and of course you know there that's not a good thing to do no so at my height day to day because i i i'm a data guy right so i i started collecting like 80 variables about myself every day. Wow. So biomedical, cognitive, behavioral, environmental, social, you name it. All the, and, and constructing longitudinal models to try to predict what was going on in my condition. So I'm a geek. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I did that. And, and for many years there, at the worst, I, I would rate myself on like an 11-point pain scale. Okay. It would be a 6 to an 8 Yeah. consistently for me. Yeah. So enough that it was debilitating in some way. Now, same pain, same condition, after years and years of, you know, concentrated meditation and exercise, I still feel pain. Yeah. But I would rank it somewhere around a one to three wow every day that's a lot of work that you've put into managing your mm-hmm. condition i'm i'm obsessive about that <laughs> yeah. sort of thing and 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 truly it's it's because i i got to the point where i pretty much gave up on everything yeah. it, was, it was really bad yeah and you know i've got i've got one life yeah and i'm not gonna not have ms yeah, I, I can sit around and wait and hope that they're going to come up with some kind of cure in my lifetime, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Yeah, I, I still have to live well. Yeah, and for me, the science is the way I've been studying people all my life, mm-hmm. and so the science was my way into crafting a better. 
path. Yeah. And then, of course, I got really obsessive about it. And it wasn't just about me. It yeah. was about, well, what can I do for other people? Mm-hmm. So I interviewed hundreds. I surveyed thousands. I did, you know, massive meta-analyses across thousands of studies. And, and instead of looking at health, because I'm not that kind of science, you know, I'm not that kind of doctor. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a social psychologist. So what I was interested in was looking at quality of life. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, a gazillion people over the years, over the centuries, the millennia have written books about, well, how do you live a good life? What I was interested in was a little bit different question that not many people have tackled. And that is, how do you live a good life in the presence of something really bad that you can never get away from? I've seen conversations around this pop up quite a bit in terms of the cancer community and people that might Mm -hmm. be living with incurable cancer, stage four breast cancer or whatever it may be, and Mm -hmm. how they've been finding that, yeah, that topic of the quality of your life isn't necessarily tackled or talked about from medical professionals, and it's not necessarily a priority. And I find that really interesting. So that's really incredible the work that you've been doing yeah and uh, thank you and and it was it was something that that i felt kind of uniquely prepared to tackle not just because i i lived for all these years with a medical condition i spent a decade as a caregiver to a wife with an advanced cancer yeah and and i had been studying from the 90s i as an academic i'd been studying the question why do some people succeed and others fail under difficult circumstances. Yeah. And so that just naturally translated to what we deal with every day. Yeah. It is a hot topic in the MS community. Have you ever considered the stem cell transplant or AHSCT for your MS? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to the idea. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, uh, I, I'm a scientist guy. Yeah. And so... <laughs> The, the the data are inconclusive, yeah. I think, at yeah. this point. Yeah. And, and so uh, certainly I, I, I've been a guinea pig in many, many ways in my life so far. And I will I will jump on if it turns out to be yeah. validated. Yeah. But it's not there yet. Yeah. I don't think. I was reading on your website. I spent quite a, little t- a lot of time reading your blog. And I saw that you wrote that there was this moment, and you actually mentioned it previously in this interview, where you were mowing your front lawn and the pain got mm-hmm. so bad that you passed out. And in your blog post, you write that it was then when you were gazing up towards the sky that you gave up on your dream of perhaps learning to fly, mm-hmm. but you didn't give up, did you? You actually became a skydiver. So when did this enter your life? Tell, tell us everything. Well, so as, as a little kid in the 70s, I, I saw a skydiver and he was flying a Ram Air parachute. So that's the rectangular parachutes that we fly now. Well, those were new yeah. at the time. Okay. And you don't just drop out of the sky with those. You fly them, yeah. and you can land them on target. And, and I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I want to do that. Yeah. So in the, in the mid-'90s then, when I was working on my doctorate, I said, okay, I've waited long enough. Because as a kid, I'd made some parachutes and tried to – I'd climb as high as I thought I could survive, and I'd jump off something <laughs> and, you know, didn't work real well. Yeah. But, you know, exactly. So, so I'd found a – 
a club drop zone. And so in the 90s, then tandem skydives weren't a common thing. Okay. So, you know, where you go and you hook yourself up to an experienced skydiver. Because they were invented in the 80s, but they weren't widely available. So back then in the 90s, when you started, you did all the training, you went up and you hooked yourself out of the plane and landed yourself on your own. Yeah. And then, and that's just how it happened. So that's what I did. Wow. And, uh, talk, talk about a, a, an experience that completely reframes the way you see reality. Yeah. That was something. Wow. So I got a handful of jumps in, but then... I didn't realize when I started skydiving that skydiving isn't a hobby. It is a lifestyle choice Yeah. because it requires a massive commitment to be a good skydiver. You've got to learn how to become a pilot in two ways. You've got to be able to fly your body. You've got to be able to fly canopy. There's, there's just a lot to it. It's not yeah. just flinging yourself to earth. So career got in the way and then, you know, family and kids and then health got in the way. And then that happened and I gave up on the whole idea. And then one day, a few years later, my, my then teenage son said, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. Okay. And and that was, you know, it was a cheeky, funny thing for a teenage kid to say, but it was also kind of heartbreaking yeah. as well, because no dad wants to hear that. From no. son. But I knew he was right, too, because my condition, because I'd had a massive right frontal temporal exacerbation. Mm -hmm. So you know what kind of symptoms are involved there. That's basically the laundry list of stuff that, that looks like dementia. Yeah. And, you know, it was... It was it completely blew me, my life, my career, my family apart. Yeah. And and at the time, my then neurologist, which is not the first neurologist, mm -hmm. he'd, he'd had to move to another community. So he's a different neurologist. He didn't even tell me about it from the results at the time. Yeah. Because he was kind of checking out. I think he was toward the end of his career, and he was kind of checking out, and a lot of stuff was being done by his nurse practitioners and so I didn't even find out exactly what had happened until I'd gotten fed up and gone to another neurologist a couple of years later. Yeah. And he began, he was an MS specialist and began by retrospectively going through, by that time, a decade of tests. Yeah. And, and so I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. now I understand what was happening with that. So I said, you know, and, and so I was literally... On my last legs, because I, I, I could not see a, a path from the life I was then living yeah. to any kind of life I was interested in. Yeah. And I said, after he said that, I was like, yeah, he's right. I'm going to give myself one more chance. Yeah. And, and I am going to do something just for myself. Yeah. Just for me. Yeah. Because I had not done anything just for myself in over a decade. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure my kids never remembered me doing anything for myself because they weren't old enough to remember the last time I'd done it. And for me, the obvious choice was I'm going to go back to skydiving because I've only had 13 jumps or so. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to get all the licenses and I'm going to get a rating and I'm going to become a legit real skydiver. Yeah. So in 20, 2019, I went back and... I didn't tell them at the drop zone, and it's really cool because my drop zone is five miles from my house. Okay. So it's like right there. Yeah. I can I can uh, just zip down, get a jump in, come back to work. Wow. So it's it's really convenient. But I didn't tell them I had MS to begin with okay. because 
I was afraid that they would say, because there's so many misconceptions yeah. around the condition, I didn't want to take the chance of them saying, no, you shouldn't do this, go bowling instead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I did, and for the first few jumps, I had a lot of trouble controlling my legs okay. in free fall. And, and we came down after one particular jump, and my instructor, who had thousands of jumps, all the ratings, she'd you know, done a ton. She sits down in front of me and, and looks a little wild-eyed and says, that was the most terrifying skydive I've ever been on. Oh, no. Because have you, have you seen the movie Captain Marvel? No, I haven't. Okay, there's this scene toward the end where she she's shot back to Earth. Okay. And and they 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 used a stunt performer, you know, free falling, just flailing yeah. out of control for like thousands of feet. And that was down. You. And that was me. <laughs> and I've got it on video. Wow. So I mean, I it, that was me. Yeah. And but I always managed to stay altitude aware. And, and get myself stable and pull on time. Yeah. So I was being safe there. But wow. anyway, it takes 25 jumps okay. to get your first license. Yeah. And so when she confronted me on this, I'm like, well, I can't feel my legs below my knees. And she says, why? Did you hurt them? And I was like, no, it's MS. And so I explained all this to them. But then everybody, you know, Scott Evers called each other Sky Family. And everybody rallied around behind me and, and really helped. And so normally it takes 25 jumps to get your first license. It took me 47 okay. to get my first license. Yeah. And, and it was a lot of extra work. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of extra work on the ground. It was a lot of time in the wind tunnels trying to figure out, was somebody right there on my legs saying, and, and because I can't feel below my knees, I had to learn how to understand where my leg was in space by the tension I could feel on the tendons behind my knees. Okay. So... A lot of extra work. So then in 2019, I, I, I logged about 140 jumps, got my A and my B license. So in 2020, I set myself a bigger goal. And I said, I'm going to become a legit skydiver. Yeah. What that really means is passing 500 jumps. Okay. Because 500 jumps is where you get all the licenses in the sport. You're eligible for professional ratings and that sort of thing. Wow. So that's like the big milestone. So that meant to do it in 2020. I needed to log better than one jump a day for the entire year. Oh, my goodness. So I logged 370 jumps in 2020. Wow. Everybody else was sleeping in lockdown. I was going to say, in the middle of a pandemic. jumping my <laughs> butt off every, every day I could. Wow. Yeah, but you're probably in free fall. It goes faster than a virus. Yeah. So so I did. And I, I, I managed to log you know better than one a day and... and Got my coach rating uh, along the way, and, and so I'm able to help teach people in the sport too. That is incredible. I can somewhat relate. As soon as I was diagnosed with MS, I just went and immediately bungee jumped. So <laughs> Very good. I, I love bungee jumping. I, I was an undergrad in Oxford, yeah. and I jumped with the Oxford Dangerous Sport Club. Wow, cool. Yeah, they invented bungee jump. That was, that's 30 years ago now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. Go you. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, I bungee jumped off the Auckland Harbour Bridge and I, oh, like you, didn't beautiful. disclose that I had anything. It was like, do you have any neuro, I don't even know if it was neurological, but they wrote something that I was like, oh, that is MS. But technically I hadn't been officially diagnosed. It had just been floated around oh. that you probably have this, but we'll check back in in a week. And I was like, well, technically I don't have it. So I don't have to disclose this. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. But 
I'm imagining, because from my experience, the internet, people, books, as soon as you're diagnosed with MS, it's just screaming at you, avoid stress, avoid stress. And I'm sure there are people listening that, and perhaps me as well, that there probably isn't many things in this world more stressful than throwing yourself out of an airplane. But that's part of why I did this. Okay. You're exactly right. It wasn't just about reclaiming a childhood dream. Yeah. It was about, okay, so I got a PhD in people. I understand the acute stress response and what's yeah. actually going on. And this is one of my pet peeves. It just, it, it really pisses me off. Every single medical professional who, well-meaning or not, says avoid stress. I want to choke the living snot out of them. <laughs> Period. Yes. Because, because stress, life is stressful. I know, if right? If you tell us to avoid stress, you're telling us to cosset ourselves away in private and give up on life. Yeah. And, and what people really don't understand about stress is that there's good stress and bad stress. So there's yeah. eustress, good stress, bad stress, distress. And this is, this is like the first, this is like chapters two through five of my book. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, a crucial topic. And, and they live right next to each other at what I call the edge. So in other words, it's the edge is a ratio to uh, the capacity you can deliver to the demand in front of you. Yeah. And as you, if your capacity is just a little over what the circumstances are demanding of you, well, those are some of the best human experiences that we have yeah. because we feel accomplished and we feel excited and we feel, you know, it's that flow experience, right? Yeah. And, and those are beautiful. But they're right next to the edge because then if the demand goes just a little bit higher, now we're overwhelmed and we fail. Yeah. But you have to take the chance of failing in order to have those best human experiences that we all want. Yeah. And then if you if you really misjudge it and the demand is really high and your capacity is way down here, that's trauma. Yeah. That's what trauma is. Okay. And and so for me, I was facing fear in the sky. And it wasn't the fear of heights because yeah. I knew, you know, I had skydived a few times and and I knew what I was in for. It was the fear of my own body. Because the thing that I feared the most in the world was my body that had betrayed me in so many ways yeah. over the years. Yeah. And so I thought this is my version of extreme immersion therapy. And <laughs> I thought, I am going to put myself in a position because there's a time. So fear lives on the inside of the door, skydiving. Yeah. When you're inside, it can be pretty terrifying. Yeah. But then you pass through that door and it is the most amazing, focused, mindful experience you will ever have. Yeah. Because there's nothing distracting you. You are right there in that moment right there and 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 that is it yeah so whatever you were concerned about on the ground suddenly looks really really small yeah and so it it puts an entirely different perspective on your life yeah so when i go through the door a little voice in my head always says 82 seconds because from 14,000 feet i've got 82 seconds before i impact the ground my life expectancy is now 82 seconds unless I do something really 
right. <laughs> this is so stressful, me just thinking about it. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's beautiful because there's this... So, so you're familiar with Stoicism, right? And, yeah. and Stoics have a lot of ideas. They're very similar to like Zen Buddhism. And, and there's, there's this conscious contemplation of death, right? Yeah. And the yeah. reason why you, you contemplate death is so that you seize life, yeah. so that you understand how precious it is. So you've seen the cover of my book. Yeah. And this, this picture on the cover of my book it took us because this is exactly it's kind of like your image for your your podcast. You knew exactly what you wanted. Yeah. I knew exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Because this image tells the story of the entire book. Yeah. And it took us eight jumps over six weeks to get this exact image. Wow. So what am I doing? I've got my hands up here to my forehead like this. And I'm about to sweep them out really broadly. Yeah. So, and I explain this in the prologue to the mm -hmm. book. So every skydiver in the world will recognize that gesture. That gesture is called the wave off. Okay. And, and this was at 5,000 feet when, when this was taken. So that's 27 seconds from impact, wow. which is a little high for an experienced skydiver to be pulling, but it got the framing right. Yeah. So anyway, what I'm doing is I'm waving off. I'm telling everybody in my airspace, I am about to take action to save my own life. Yes. And then I deploy my parachute. And how many times, you know, every skydive, we make a conscious decision, an active decision to save our own lives. And, and I knew if I could do that, yeah. if I could trigger my acute stress response and come back and save myself and come back every day for a year, and now I'm over 600 jumps, and, yeah. you know, I, and I jump all, all the time when I can. Yeah. So if I could do that, I could build the confidence in my own body, in myself, that would give me the fortitude I needed to finish the book and build the company and curriculum and all that other stuff. Yeah. But for me, it began by finding my confidence again, saving myself literally. Wow. I love that. I was about to say what inspired you to start sharing your story and to write the book and create your company? Well, because I think I have been really privileged in so many ways. And and I have had the opportunity to amass an obscene amount of education and expertise in a particular field that I care deeply about. Yeah. And and I think that that incurs some kind of responsibility to to do something. As a matter of fact, when when I got my doctorate, I was the last student of my doctoral advisor. Yeah. And he was in his late seventies by that time. And 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 we had a very close relationship. When he passed away a few years later, his children asked me to do uh, a eulogy yeah. for him. So I mean, you know, we were really close. So. They do the hooding ceremony. That's what it's called, the graduation. They put that sash over you, and the, and and you are then now officially yep. doctor, right? And so he did that, and then he took me in a big bear hug, and he leaned into me, and he whispered in my ear, now, do something meaningful with this privilege you've earned. Yeah. And And for me, what I'm doing here is 
trying to fill in some of the blanks that we're not educated about when we're given a chronic diagnosis. The education that we get is about making us good patients. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm happy to be a good patient. Yeah. But I don't care about being a good patient. Yeah. I care about living a good life. Yeah. And and so I want to fill in the blanks and provide people with the perspective and the information and the science that no one gave me when I needed it. Yeah. If people want to read your book and find out more about you, where can they find you? They can. I tried to make it really easy. They can go to yourlifelivedwell.co. And they can even download 100 pages of the book free yep. to see if it's something that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've got links there. Social links are there, links to my podcast, which is educational, yep. basically. Usually just me and a microphone on a, on a topic that, that we're you know, interested in yeah. is living with chronic illness. Um, and links to the seminars and the webinars that I do and all that kind of stuff. So... And of course, I'll pop all of that in the show notes so everybody can have easy access to find it. Yeah, and they can see the at the top of the page, they can see the 30-second commercial yeah. that we shot in Freefall. It's wild. I was watching that yesterday again and again, just like, this is unreal. Wasn't that a great, wasn't that a great, I mean, I had, I had some great camera guys yeah. and, and it was, I, I thought it got people's attention. Yeah, it definitely know? got I my attention. I wanted attention. something that got people's attention. So. <laughs> So what's next for you, Dr. Kevin J. Payne? What's happening in 2022? Well, it's, you know, for most of this year, it's getting the word out on all of this and, and, you know, building, because a lot of what we do are training for medical health and wellness professionals so that they can do a better job supporting people with chronic illness and so that they can better balance like burnout and, and some of those things mm-hmm. that come along with it. Cause that's a chronic condition in and of itself. Yeah. But toward the end of the year, early next year, then we'll have the app yeah. that comes out as well. Exciting. So that's, I, I think going to be uh, pretty cool because there are, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there right now about which mindset and behavior techniques actually work yeah. with regard to change mm-hmm. and and the short answer for all that is it depends okay <laughs> and 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 almost all of them work for someone but only some of them will work for you yeah yeah so what i spent years developing was the technology that allows us to profile someone like you mm-hmm. and say oh for someone like you for this kind of change this is the most likely approach you need to take and then monitor you and then if you're not going according to what we think switch you to the next most likely for someone like you incredible that's what that's what i'm doing exciting watch this space thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with everybody listening today well you are so kind jess and i am thrilled to be a little part of what you're doing because i really dig your podcast yay and, and keep up the good work ah thank you so much It's possible that this episode could take the cake for the most times I say wow. But again, 
Wow. A huge thank you to you for listening to another episode of That's So Chronic. I've been very inspired to try and dig out the old footage of me doing a post-diagnosis bungee jump. So if you head to at That's So Chronic on Instagram and TikTok, I'll make sure that I post it there. If I remember correctly, the video is very embarrassing. <laughs> As always, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you've pressed follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and make sure you've left a five star review. That really helps That's So Chronic get bumped up the charts and be shown to more and more people. I hope you have a lovely week.